Sunday afternoon, and welcome to Connecting the Dots with Dan Havel. Thumper, I'm telling you, buddy, today we have a very special man is is going to be on our program with us. Dr. E. Gaylord McCullough is someone who I have to tell you, I looked into his background, I read his bio, I was somewhat familiar with some of the aspects of his life, but the deeper I got into his background, the more I realized we've got someone here that is absolutely special and someone who is going to be an incredible interview. We always take pride in the fact that we have such good people come on our program, but Dr. McCullough is absolutely, I think, probably one of the uh, neatest individuals that I've ever had a chance to interview, and I am just tickled to death to have him as guest on the program. He has written 25 books. He is a world-famous plastic surgeon. He has won virtually every kind of award you can think of for academics, for sports, for uh, his his uh, uh, incredible work in medicine. I mean, this gentleman has got literally about every credential there is to have, and I'm just absolutely tickled to death. And the cool part about it is Dr. McCullough is one of the absolutely best patriots I've ever talked to because we had a conversation uh, a week or so ago and it just blew me away what an absolutely dedicated patriot this gentleman is. So with that said, uh, Dr. McCullough, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for agreeing to be our guest. Dan, thank you for having me on. I have uh, heard about you for years. I've looked into your past and as well, and it's truly an honor to be on this program with you and for us to talk about what we love most, and that's the United States of America, and to talk about some of the issues. And sometimes people ask me, why is a facial plastic surgeon writing books about the condition of the world? And I guess I can say that as a physician, one of the things that we're taught is to look at the information that we have available to us, and then to try to find what the underlying condition for our patient is that's making them unwell. And then as a surgeon, we have the ability to alter those things if there's some feature or that's out of, out of uh, proportion 
And so I guess uh, all of my medical training and my, my athletic training, my sports training, I was extremely fortunate to play for Coach Paul Bear Bryant in the 1960s, and we won a national championship team, and many people know about Coach Bryant, but uh, we learned so many life lessons from him, not just about winning football games, about winning at the game of life. And so what I've tried to do uh, in my books I, I'm a strong believer in the Bible, and um, and there's a verse in Luke 12:48 that says, "Unto whom much is given, much is required." And truly, I've been given wonderful opportunities to be around some great people and be in good positions, and so I feel it's an obligation or an expectation to share the things that I've learned with my fellow man. Well, I in going over some of the things that you've been involved in, I. I have to tell you, I was a little bit uh, shocked at first because you literally have lived, I think, uh, probably as close to a, an exemplar's life as a human could possibly live. And you've gotten these wonderful awards. I know you won the uh, uh, Paul W. Bryant uh, Alumni Athletic uh, Award. You've won different uh, academic and uh, sports things, but sometimes people get a little bit, I don't know, I, I guess I would have to say they get just a little bit arrogant about all of the uh, awards and all the accolades they have in their life. And when I go through your stuff and I read some of the stuff that you've written, you are a real exemplar for the fact that uh, none of this ever went to your head. And I understand completely. I, I've uh, uh, read some of the uh, things that you've done on being a Christian. And, uh, you know, you, you, uh, you were somebody that I'm absolutely, I'd, I would love, and of course, this is going to take some time to do, but I would love to have you as a best friend. You're one of those kind of people that I know that I could depend on uh, when the bullets start flying because uh, you're the kind of person that reacts that way. Well, that, no higher compliment can be paid to anybody than what you've just said, Dan, and I really appreciate that. But no, I've learned a long time ago, just about the time you think you've got life conquered, it reaches out there and slaps you down. And so you should never, I tell this to my colleagues all the time, uh, we, you know, we doctors, sometimes, unfortunately, I've been a patient too at times, and, and sometimes doctors get a little bit impressed with their credentials. And what I tell them is, is look, we're no different from anybody else. We just went to school a little bit longer and learned a few things, but you know, we're all ignorant in some things. So don't get impressed with yourself because life is a process. And, and that's why I call it the game of life, because like any game, it, it has a beginning and, and it'll have an end. And, and our objective, I think our responsibility is to try to play that game to its fullest until the very last second. And the, that, that last second in the game of life is, is when, when we end on this phase of our life. I, I'm a full believer that we are compositions of body, mind, and soul or spirit. And I think that where we are today on this planet, this is a test. And the latest book that I'm working on, I finished the manuscript. Now I'm just doing the editing. It's called The Greatest Experiment Ever Conceived. And the subtitle of that book is when the architect of the universe connected the 
survival of the fittest with the glorification of the godliest. Now that's a mouthful, but the but the basic of the the book is this: um, God created the planet. God created human beings. He put us here. He gave us everything that we needed, including free will, the ability to create our own destiny. And then he stepped back and he said, I'm going to see what you guys do with this. Uh, you've got, you got everything you need. I'm going to see what you make of this world. I'll be around if you need me. Call me if you need me, but I'm going to just let you, let, let you, let's see what, what you're going to do with it. So that's really what, what I've tried to do is I tried to share the things with my fellow man that I've learned from my mentors. I've had some wonderful mentors in athletics and in medicine and in, in the game of life. And uh, I've learned a lot of things from them. And I feel like that my responsibility is to share those things with everybody. You know, that's a, an attitude we should all have. And I have a very similar one myself. I've, I've, my life has been blessed in so many ways. We have an obligation to do everything we can to benefit our fellow man and do it in a way that really benefits them. And that is uh, reaching out to them with truth and the idea that uh, their soul is so incredibly important. The human soul is truly uh, God's gift to us, and we need to make sure that these people don't steal the souls of good people who uh, just may be fallen by the wayside. They need to be brought to the truth. And every every night when I uh, when I do my prayers, every night the thing I pray for, and I believe this is what heaven really is, is we will see the absolute truth we will understand the absolute truth when we die and our soul goes to heaven. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I mentioned that we are compositions of, of body, mind, and soul. And the last book that I published, or the next to the last book I published, is called Tomorrow in America, The Battle for the Souls of Our Children. And I think there's no question but what uh, that battle is ongoing. And there, uh, the evildoers... You know, there was a time that evil used to lurk in the shadows and would come out every once in a while and you would know it was there, but 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 it wasn't front and center. And now evil is front and center everywhere you look in the news. It's in the it's in entertainment industry. It's in some forms of music. It's in our literature. It's in the books that our kids read. It's everywhere. And it's just taking it's it's gotten so bold. The evildoers have become so bold that they now have any they're unabashed about doing anything to try to change our the children uh, that we have and to capture their souls. And and I think it's for Lucifer. You know, the battle of uh, of good and evil started in heaven. We're told, and Lucifer tried to uh, overthrow the kingdom of God, and he failed there. And I think he ended up on Earth. And so here he is now, trying to create his his kingdom on earth. And there are a whole bunch of people that he recruit, he's recruited to help him do that. And we're seeing the effects of that, I think, every single day. Well, I, you know, that's one of the things that goes with uh, Marxism and, and uh, communism is the fact that they do not believe in a heavenly father. They, they believe that man can be God. 
and they believe that the government, uh, the government, or, or the government is the God, yeah. the giver and taker of all things is government mm-hmm. and, and Marxism. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. So that's why it's so important to have people like you that talk, that uh, speak out truthfully. Now, you've written so many books, but you've written on just about everything uh, that I can think of. And uh, the world, uh, there was a quote, and I, I don't remember who quoted it, but it said, how in the world could you... Uh, possibly read one author and learn about Elvis Presley and uh, the kingdom of God, you know, you name it in uh, from one author. And uh, that's quite a compliment in itself. Well, I can tell you who that is, is John Cochran. John Cochran uh, was worked for ABC and NBC, and he was a reporter. And uh, he filled in for Peter Jennings on the six o'clock news. And John has been around the journalism for a long, long time. He and our dear friends, we both are Alabama football fans. And that's the thing that really brought us together. And so uh, John reviewed that book and was uh, very kind to write uh, an endorsement for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, those, those are actually his words. I see. Well, that's wonderful. Well, you you got my. I, I uh, hopefully you got my uh, little newsletter that I uh, send out before I do a, a program, and I want to. I really want to uh, talk about today is globalism, the World Economic mm-hmm. Forum, the international banking cartels, the. Uh, uh, World Health Organization. I mean, everything is being pushed to globalism. And I know that's why they hated Trump right. so bad was because he believed in America. He believed in the United States of America, just like our show opener. Uh, he believed that we were a special country. And as a result of that, he put, he put the kibosh on a lot of globalist plans to move into the new world order. And boy, they hate him with a passion uh, as a result of that. And they keep bringing that up. And I've got some uh, congressmen, friends, and people that I contact on a regular basis that are part of the Freedom Caucus. And uh, they're the ones that are trying to straighten out this mess. And the only way it's going to happen is if we have more people start to wake up but that's why you're here you're you're the guy with the uh you're the watchman on the wall you're the guard guy with the alarm clock and it sounds to me like it's going off well i've been talking about this for quite some time and and if i can give you a little background information Mm -hmm. i think it might help you and and the audience understand where i come from um I'm going to start with one of the most critical events that ever taught me that we're being lied to. Years ago, this was back in the early 1990s, I was invited to attend an event at the National Defense University. I didn't know what the National Defense University was at the time that I was invited to go there. I learned, though, that it's a finishing school for admirals and generals, and it's located in a little peninsula it's in the Potomac River, right there in Washington, and so I, I, didn't I was know stationed why. there. I I have to tell you, I was stationed at Fort McNair. Uh, I know uh, all about McNair. the war colleges. Yeah, 
good for you. Good for you. Well, so many people don't know that 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 port even exists. And I didn't know why I was being invited to attend an event there. Um, but I had to go through an FBI clearance, a very extensive FBI clearance in order to be able to attend that event. So the morning of the event, we get there and there are about 20 of us in a room and none of us had name tags on. And we had two colonels that came in, introduced themselves, and one pulled a map down of the Eastern Hemisphere and began to tell us about all of the um, regime changes and things that were happening in the Eastern Hemisphere. And 15 minutes later, he sat down and a female colonel came up and pulled the map of the Western Hemisphere down and began to tell us about the events and uh, regime changes occurring in the Western Hemisphere. And so when she finished, she said, any questions? Well, of course, my hand is the first one in the air. And she said, Dr. McCullough, what's your question? And I thought, how does she know my name? And then I thought, well, we've been through an FBI investigation. I guess they know everybody's name here. Mm -hmm. and, and so I said, well, Colonel, my question is, why would you bring a group of civilians here and tell us about these things? And she said, Dr., you're a focus group. We want to see what you think you know. What you think you know. And then she said, we know that our enemies read our newspapers, watch our television, listen to our radios. We know that our enemy is, is listening to everything that goes on. So what you, what you see in the news and what you hear in the news, there's an element of truth to it. But there's no way that you'll ever know the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth from the news. Well, that was my first indication that there was something going on that we were not as, as a society were, were unaware of. And then I was part of the transition when Coach Bryant retired and when he was, and we were trying to, to hire his successor. And I was inside that event. Matter of fact, my job was I was the liaison between the potential people that might replace him and the University of Alabama. So it was my job to, con to contact a potential um, coach and ask if they were interested in the job. And, and I would come home at night and I would see on the television, so-and-so is a leading candidate to replace Coach Brown. I hadn't even contacted that person. And I was working <laughs> on the university's behalf. So I learned that. And then I went to an event uh, in Washington where I was there to, to try to help get a new hospital in Birmingham. And we were working diligently to do that. And a friend of mine knew Rosalind Carter. And so on the way up there, uh, we stopped in Atlanta. And I picked up a newspaper and I saw a small article where Amy Carter was at a tennis camp in West Virginia. And I thought, man, this will be a great icebreaker. So I tore the little piece of paper out and stuck it in my pocket. And I thought it'd be a good thing for me to talk to. So we go to the, to the White House and we go into the war room. This is the room where World War II was actually conducted. Ms. Carter comes in and she and my friend have their pleasantries. And then she, she, she says, Dr. McCullough, I understand you're here to talk to me about something. I said, oh, yes. And I understand Amy's at a tennis camp in West Virginia. She said, oh, no, Amy's in Iowa. Uh, we put those, those reports out, those press releases for security purposes. And my mm -hmm. thinking is, why publish a lie? Why just not say nothing? Right. And, right. and so... Over the years, I have I have absolutely learned that what we are told is not the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So that made me start looking, connecting the dots. I love your term. And, and if you read my books, you'll see that I use that probably more often than any author should mm -hmm. use a phrase. But I'm absolutely there with you. So if you start connecting these dots, all of a sudden, pictures begin to occur. 
Sometimes they're pretty pictures, sometimes they're ugly pictures, but the truth begins to, to, to evolve and to show itself if you do that. So just a little background to let you know that this isn't, these aren't things that I just dreamed up. I have a basis for every single thing and every proposition that, that I put forward. Mm -hmm. Well, you've, uh, you've been in some uh, high circles. You've, you've, uh, you've, you've seen how the sausage is made. So have I, actually. I've, I've, uh, when I was at uh, Fort McNair, I ended up spending uh, uh, two years at Fort McNair, and I had a, a, a top-secret security clearance, got to meet most of the general staff and, and uh, the generals, the flag officers that were there. And, uh, it was amazing to me how, I guess, how, uh, first of all, a lot of the military people really weren't that tuned in on things that were right. going on in the world around them. They were kind of, right. I got the impression that they were, uh, they were kind of isolated. And uh, they, they certainly, a lot of them didn't think outside the box, I can tell that. Uh, but anyway, I your comments about that and your involvement in that, I think that is absolutely at the very heart of our whole country right now is the fact that we're being fed one lie after another. We are being shown just what they want us to see. And that's why we're trying to connect dots because there's no such thing. I don't care what anybody says. There's no such thing as an accident or something happen, happening by accident in government. Um, I, I think uh, Franklin Roosevelt was famous for saying, if uh, there's nothing that happens in accident by go in government, if it happens, you can bet it was planned that way. And I absolutely think that's true. One of the one of the statements that I make throughout all my books is a phrase that I learned from a good friend of mine who's a major general retired in the U.S. Army. And I call it the David Bockle principle because he said there are no coincidences. And then David and I have had conversations and he's told me so many things that he's experienced during his military career, a very stellar military career, where he confirmed that. So you're absolutely right. And, you know, it's it's the old cause and, and effect thing. Sir Isaac Newton described this to us many, many years ago. For every event, there's a cause. For everything that happened, there's something behind it. And if I might digress just a little bit, the, this is something that when you hear the people talk about the Big Bang, the atheists talk about the Big Bang and the creation of the universe. Well, here's something that, that I realized a long time ago. No thing or nothing cannot produce anything. It takes something to produce or create something. Right. And so if there was a Big Bang, let's just say if there was a Big Bang, then there had to be some matter that had been created prior to that. And there had to be an energy source that created the bang. So the idea that things just happened or that two molecules bumped into a murky pool at some point in the past, and that was what the creation of life was, is the most asinine thing in the world. And I can tell you that as a physician, the more that I learn about the human body, the more I realize this was the most miraculous creation, the human body that has ever been conceived in the, in the universe. 
it, if you look at all the checks and balances system, the thing that we have, one thing controls another or offsets another, and how how it all comes together whenever you have your uh, have an infection or you're confronted by something. So this whole idea that there is no God is the most asinine thought in the world. There is an intelligent being, group, whatever you want to call it, uh, that, that created all of this, and I think is still overseeing the process. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's uh, there. there's a, a, a book called A Tornado in the Junkyard. Uh, that that is like you say about the most asinine thing in the world when when you realize that every every basic premise of physics tells us that this couldn't happen the way they said it happened and right. that's a right. scientific thing that but there certainly there's a spiritual aspect of it that uh couldn't even begin to be explained with their so-called big bang theory what I call it, um, Dan, is I call it in one of one of my early books, Let Us Make Man, which is an in-depth study of the book yeah. of Genesis, I call it divinely engineered creative evolution. Now think about divinely engineered, a divine source engineered the process. Mm-hmm. And then it it is is creative and evolution evolution is real. There's no question about evolution is real, but it is something that was planned and constructed and is still monitored and I think directed at times. Because the people who say evolution is 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 debunked, all you would have to do is go back and look at the size of the human being during the Roman army. People have no idea. You know what the average height of the Roman soldiers were, this greatest army that ever lived? Average height was five feet four. And so now you look at the average size of NFL play size of NFL players. What is the average size of NFL players? Mm-hmm. They're giants. And mm-hmm. so human, all of humanity has evolved. We're larger. We're, we're I think we're different than we were many years ago. And and I think we have the ability to direct that evolution by the thoughts we think and the actions that we take. Yeah, absolutely. Now. You're you're saying something that I've thought for a very, very long time myself. And if we look at uh where we were seventy, eighty years ago as a as a civilization, as a culture, um and as a society, and then understand one thing, the control freaks started really taking over in the early part of the twentieth century. Uh, in a big way, you know. I know it goes back further than that. Goes back to really uh, thousands of years, but it took off in a big way uh, in the late 1880s, early 1900s, and that's right. when they started going after education. We are nowhere nearly the 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 kids today, even though they're incredibly bright and they have incredible abilities because of the propaganda, because of the control of the environment. Uh, the the powers that be have created a, a culture that is nowhere nearly as gifted and capable as we would have been if we had just continued to do what we were doing 120 years ago. 
they're, they're lacking common sense. They're not being taught common sense, which is connecting the dots. They're being funneled so much information that honestly, kids today have very little time to connect the dots or to think, how does this connect to something else? They don't have time to think. Think about this. When you and I were younger, you name it, 10 years old, 14 years old, uh, hunting in the woods, fishing on the banks, sitting there looking at the stars. These kids today hardly are ever without a cell phone in their face or an iPad and being fed information. They're very rarely ever doing anything creative. They're very rarely ever just thinking. And even in an automobile, uh, you know, they're constantly being barraged in the headphones and on everywhere. So I don't think that they may be smarter in some ways, but I just don't know that they are being taught the common sense and the ability to connect the dots that your generation, my generation, and those previously were able to do. Uh-huh. I agree. They, um, they are being, uh, I guess led is the best way that I can say that. They're, they're being led. Uh, Looks like my camera's locked up. I have to apologize. We've had some camera issues lately. Um, anyway, they are being led to uh, think and do certain things and act in certain ways. And they're being conditioned because as you, uh, and I'd, I'd love to get into this conversation, as, as you well know, that the future is a transhuman world controlled by man according mm-hmm. to the powers that uh, control the World Economic Forum. They control much of the uh, political environment all over the world right now. It's all this globalism and this globalism, and I'm going to make a, a statement here, and I, I would love to hear your um, your, your uh, thoughts on uh, this idea. They are creating a neo-feudalist culture. They plan to take us back to a neo-feudalist culture where a handful of people own and control everything, and uh, the people that are left on Earth are going to be uh, controlled by a transhumanist culture using technocracy to control humans. That's well stated. You know, we were warned about this. We were warned about this by Ayn Rand, who was raised in Russia under communism. And when she came to the United States of America, she wrote two benchmark books. One was Fountainhead and the other was Atlas Shrugged. And anybody that hasn't read those books are really not doing themselves or their children or their country a favor in my opinion, because she warned us about exactly what was going to happen. Now then, let's, let's about the same time, maybe a little bit later, along comes a guy by the name of George Orwell. Now, George Orwell was really not his name. I wrote the only sequel to his 1984 that's ever been written. It's called The Orwellian State of America. And I, I researched him very extensively. He was actually, his name was Eric Blair. He was part of the same family that Tony Blair, the former prime minister of England, was a member of. His father was a member of MI5. That's the James Bond organization. And his father sent all over the world to manage the British interests. 
And so he was in Spain during the Civil War of Spain, and young Eric Blair um, was there and saw it and actually volunteered and fought on the side of the conservatives in the Spanish Civil War. So when he finished this, when the war was over, he told his father, I'm going to write a book about everything that I've learned here. And his father said, well, two things. First of all, you can't use your real name. And secondly, you have to write it as a novel. So he picked, I don't know where he got the name George Orwell, but he did. And he wrote it as a novel. But I say it's an allegory. You know, an, uh, to, to me, an allegory is a novel that tells a true story, uh, just using different characters. Right. And so if you haven't read Anne Rand's book, uh, I think Atlas Shrugged. It's a longer book, but mm -hmm. it's got it's more detail than Fountainhead. And you hadn't read George Orwell's book. And then there's another book out there called um, uh, A Brave New World, written by Aldous Huxley. When you combine those three books, those people predicted exactly what we're dealing with today. Now, Orwell talked about big government taking control. Huxley talked about big business taking control. And the big business aspect of it is artificial intelligence, uh, the internet, um, information, uh, resourcing, all of those types of things. And we are witnessing what these people wrote about now 70 years ago, but we just didn't pay attention. And I think that's the main thing. We've been distracted to the point from all of these other things that are going on that we no longer pay attention to what's happening in front of us. And our children are absolutely being indoctrinated not to pay attention and, and to be just like the Pied Piper. You know, the Pied Piper let them right off into, into the sea. And there's so many lessons to be learned from children's stories and from the past if we would just stop and pay attention to them and use those lessons into correcting today's problems. It's not that difficult. I mean, Donald Trump, mm -hmm. you may or may not like the way Donald Trump looks. You may not like the way he wears his hair. You might not like the way he talks. But the man understands what the problem is in America. He knows how to fix it. And he's up against a juggernaut because he is the greatest threat to this globalism movement right now that exists in the world. And I'm, God forgive me for saying this, but I'm, I'm surprised there haven't already been more attempts on his life because he is a thorn in their side. And if he were to get elected and undo the deep state and reveal the things that he now knows about, it could make a big difference in the world. And I believe, unfortunately, you know, I, I'm not a pessimist. I'm a realist. I believe that, that we may be seeing our last election. I don't know that if we, if Donald Trump, if the same, let me say it another way, if the same thing happens in this election that happened uh, four years ago, we will never have another free and fair election in America. No and question. That may sound fatalistic, but, but it, it's real. If they are able to steal every election from this point forward, you can write off America. And keep one thing in mind. I'm sorry to, to just continue to ramble, but, but let me connect these, these dots. Mm -hmm. um, America is the only thing that stands in the way of the one world government. They know that. The 13 families who control the world, call them what you want to call them, Illuminati, Invisible Empire, Mariah Conquering Wind, I call them the super elite ruling class. 
And then I added a term, the Luciferian super elite ruling class, because that's how they act. Um, but if, if, if they are able to eliminate Donald Trump and his movement, then they have a free ride right to what they've been trying to uh, to create for a long, long, long time. And and this is, people say, oh, that's just another conspiracy theory. Well, in some of my books, I, I, I write a factual point here. And let me share that with you, if I might, in your, in your group, your audience here. David Rockefeller was the only United States member of the Illuminati of the 13 families. He is the Rockefeller family that he was head of. He, he gave a speech to the Trilateral Commission back in the 1950s, which was one of the subgroups of the super elite ruling class or Illuminati. And he said, and I quote, I want to thank, we want to thank the New York Times, the Washington, the Washington Post and Time Magazine for their uh, uh, discrepancy over the last few years, because we could not have created our one world government had we not been, had we been subjected to the lights of publicity. And he said, our one world government is composed of world bankers and an intellectual elite. Well, he, he confirmed that. He let the cat out of the bag that many of us have been thinking about for so long. And that's the group that meets in Davos. Davos. And right. they invite others come in, but the 13 families run that. And then in David Rockefeller's memoir, right before he died, you're so before he died, he said, my family and I have been accused of, of, of trying to create a one world government for which I plead guilty and am proud of doing so. Mm -hmm. I mean, so all of a sudden conspiracy theory becomes conspiracy reality. And we've allowed them to get away with that for so long that anybody like me, perhaps you or Donald Trump that speaks out for these things, we're targeted. They come after us and try to discredit us because they don't want the public to know the truth. Oh, you're absolutely right on with that. And um, the fact that uh, they do target you is like a badge of honor. You know, it, it really is. They don't go after people that aren't on on point and doing a good job of explaining what's really going on. But, uh, Galen, I think you probably would agree with me in this, and that is I've seen since the COVID lockdowns, the American people are finally, finally starting to really understand that those crazy people like you and me that were conspiracy theorists, guess what? Those weren't theories, they were facts. And now those conspiracies are experiencing the light of day. Uh, the COVID, I call plandemic, uh -huh. was probably the greatest travesty that's ever been perpetrated on the American people. As a physician, I followed this very, very carefully from the very beginning and something that didn't pass the smell test from the very, very beginning. And, um, and, and Robert Malone is a man, a physician, a fellow physician and, and researcher that I respect greatly. And I heard Dr. Malone give a lecture and he was the inventor of this mRNA system that they used to create the so-called vaccines. Very early in the game, he said, this is not what this virus, this is not what we need. 
it, it is not what we need to fight this virus. And then he went on to talk about all the reasons why. Well, he was demonized right away for doing that. And then, and and then all here come here come all the mandates, and here come all the the attempts to go after we doctors who felt like that we had ways to treat this pandemic. And we did. I can tell you that personally, I'm a facial plastic surgeon, but I treated all of my family. I treated all of my friends. I treated my patients who asked me to. And then I have a very good friend who is an emergency room physician, and he practices in a, an area of the state of Alabama called the Black Belt. And it's while the vast majority of the patients there are, are, are black skin. Uh, it's because of the color of the soil that it's called the black belt. And he treated 400 patients, all of whom had the full, the three comorbidities with ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and the what we call the so-called cocktail without the so-called vaccine. Not a single one of those patients was admitted to the hospital. And other people all around him was die, were dying. And I've seen this myself. We had treatments that were effective against COVID. But the mandates coming down from government, big government, and big pharma, and we should not <laughs> dismiss their role in this, would prevent us. And doctors who wanted to treat patients in the hospital were actually thrown off hospital staffs and their license were pulled in some cases. So... This whole thing was Big Brother 4.0, and, 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 and we were told how far you can have to stand from one of your friends, what you got to wear, where you can go. I mean, it was a test, in my opinion, to see how far they would push us. Now, here's the thing that a lot of folks may or may not realize. There was a program in New York that was sponsored by Johns Hopkins University Medical Center, and George Gates, I'm sorry, uh, not George Gates. He was a friend of mine for years ago, uh, Bill Gates. Bill Gates was the main presenter, and, and Andy, Andrew Fauci sat on the front row. Anthony Fauci sat on the front row, and there are photographs, there are movies of this, and they went through this so-called pandemic with a virus by the name of COVID. And this all took place three or four years before this happened. So they had the process in play, before they, before it, the so-called pandemic ever came out. Now, was there a virus? You better believe it. There was a virus. It was a severe flu, but it was not a whole lot more than the average flu. We have a flu every year, but more people died as a result of the vaccines than would have died had they not been treated with those vaccines and been treated with some of these other methods. These are irrefutable facts now. And it's coming out every day that we more and more that this was really a fraud perpetrated on the American people. And everybody that was involved in it should have to answer to it at some point. Well, and uh, Dr. McCullough, think about what they called essential businesses and what they called non-essential businesses. And they they wouldn't let you go to church, but uh, they mm -hmm. kept the strip clubs open. They uh, kept the bars open. Now, you cannot tell me that this isn't a very intentional thing to uh, promote a lot of bad things and to really the, the uh, number of restaurants and small businesses. They said that 40% uh, uh, of all the small businesses that were 
uh, in place before the uh, COVID pandemic uh, ended up having to go out of business. 40%, that, you know, that's the backbone of the American middle class is the fact that we have all these small businesses and a lot of them just ended up going away. Yeah, and never to return. And and yet, look at the billions of dollars that were handed out by the federal government to certain businesses mm-hmm. that so-called suffered um, f- uh, from the pandemic. But but not all businesses; just selected ones that they uh, that they chose. And there's a famous actor. I won't mention his name, but there's a famous actor who who has a big restaurant in New York City, and uh, and, and during that period of time, he got a fat check big fat check to see that he didn't lose any money. And he's a very liberal, very outspoken uh, Democrat uh, actor, big time actor in, in Hollywood who lives in New York City. So they were very selective about who they made whole, so to speak, through this whole process. Yeah, they and and uh, I, I know exactly who you're talking about because I read something about that. But um, <laughs> it it also impacted people like Amazon. Amazon grew almost 100% uh, in in uh, the matter of year, year and a half that uh, the pandemic was in full swing. And that is, uh, that is amazing because the same people who uh, profited, as you say, are the ones that also controlled much of the 2020 election and put a lot of money into the various elections. I think uh, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Facebook, uh, Google, you know, they put so much money into the election to steal that election away from Donald Trump. And uh, we've had some really great interviews with people who were there and have done the studies on that. And uh, it's amazing to me, but the election, the way they stole it, it hasn't been changed a whole lot. If we allow this to happen again this time, boy, we are deserving what we get for government. In the Orwellian state of America, I, I wrote something that I wish I'd been absolutely wrong on. So many of my books that I wrote, I, I pray that what I wrote would be incorrect, but unfortunately, they haven't been. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote in there that George Soros had bought a heavy interest in one of the voting machine companies. And when I saw that Soros was getting involved in the voting machine business, I wrote, a voting machine is no more than a computer. And you can program a computer to spit out whatever you want it to spit out. Garbage in, garbage out. That was the old, that's the old saying about computers. And so this, this man is a, a very evil man who made his first fortune by turning in his fellow Jewish families and friends to the Nazis. And then as they were taken away, he was able to go in and get their jewelry and their artwork and their silver and their belongings. That's how he made his first money. Now, he was interviewed by Steve Croft on 60 Minutes, uh, not too many years ago, probably seven or eight years ago. And Steve asked him about this, and he admitted that he did it. And he said, how did that make you feel? And he was born a a Jewish individual. Soros was Georgie uh, Schwartz is his real name. 
And so he said, how did that make you feel? And he paused for just a moment and he said, power, absolute power. And he said, well, do you have any regrets? And he said, none. And so this is the man that is trying to elect our district attorneys in different areas, vote are buying in our, our uh, voting machines. His, uh, uh, his purpose is to totally disrupt society. And, and we just have to begin to recognize these people, call them out for who they are, call them out for what they're doing and, and, and not be afraid to do so. Well, that's the only that's the only way I think that we're ever going to be able to turn this thing around. But but, yeah, I, I am greatly concerned. Mail in voting, uh, ballot stuffing, uh, all of those kinds of things are Democrat ploys strictly to steal the election. And if you don't think that this whole thing at the border doesn't have anything to do with elections, every one of these individuals that are coming across that border, the Democrats expect them one day to be able to vote Democrat. And that's in their plan. That's in their objective. And if you don't believe that, you're naive as a Dickens. Mm-hmm. No, that's right. Uh, Dr. Robert Epstein was on with us last Sunday. We had a program with him. And I, I'm sure you remember him from his testimony before the U.S. Senate. Uh, he actually went, and, and he's working on a program now called, uh, uh, I think it's called, Feed the watchdog, uh, but he's hiring people to monitor all the different social media sites. And um, he said that Google was responsible for flipping six million votes from Trump to Biden. Well, that's twelve million votes. <laughs> six million away from Trump and six million to Biden. Uh, that's twelve million votes. That's uh, that's enough, uh, to, and, that's enough and, to change the outcome. Oh, that's yeah. I, I read and wrote also uh, in this re- most recent book about a system through our cell phone industry that they set this up. You may you may know what I see you shaking your head. You may know what I'm talking about, where uh, in order to get cell phone service to many of these rural areas, they were able to expand what the rules were. And I think Obama did this and, and it ended up being where they could also funnel voting results back in on election night. And, and so that that process was very well organized and was also part of flipping the election. Cause all of us remember that Trump was, he was way ahead around 10 o'clock and then just all of a sudden everything happened. No votes were uh, there. No progress was reported for what, three hours or so. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden all the votes started pouring in for Biden. So, you, I mean, once again, connect the dots. Once you start doing that, you realize there are no coincidences that just didn't happen. There was somebody behind it. And generally when there's somebody behind stuff like that, it's evil. Yeah. Very much so. Uh, Mary Fanning, I'm, I'm sure you're uh, probably uh, familiar with some of the films that she did with Mike Lindell, uh, Absolute mm-hmm. Proof in some of those films. Um, they actually showed the, the Kraken Group, which is a military intelligence group, went in and showed where millions and millions of votes had been 
flipped, uh, and they could go right to the IP address. They could go right to the computer in China. They could go to computers in uh, Serbia, in Italy, in Germany, in Spain. Uh, they were flipping votes all over the world. There were something like a million different computer IP addresses that they were able to track to and uh, show how many uh, votes had been flipped. And uh, according to Mary, and I think this is probably true, she said that uh, if, if all the cheating was out of the election, that uh, vote, uh, that uh, the Electoral College, uh, Trump got uh, 45 states, including California, and uh, that the, uh, the election, they actually flipped so many votes that if Biden had gone on actually with the votes that he, he actually earned, it would have been about 40 million. <laughs> and uh, it would have been over 100 million for Trump. And I, I think that makes sense. I really do. Well, it does, because it was so surprising. The outcome was so surprising. For ever, for everybody, and uh, what are we doing? What are we doing to fix that? You know, what what have we got now? November, we've got ten months. Uh, what are we doing today to fix those problems? And I don't know the answer to that. I hope somebody is working diligently behind the scenes to make sure that that doesn't happen again. But it is so critical because I know we keep saying it that that. If if we don't get somebody like Donald Trump or him or his people back in there, I'm just afraid that that, that is not a very pretty picture for what's going to happen to America. The one world one world government will be upon us. And you know, let me, if I might, just go back for a little bit because people again think again the uh, conspiracy theory. Well, let, let me let me let me talk a little bit about something that again I've written about. I did a lot done a lot of research on it in the early 1950s. Now, as far back as the 1950s, the United Nations established a commission on global governance. And this commission came back with a manifesto. It called for a one world government, one world currency, one world army, one world judicial system, and then a whole bunch of NGOs, non-government organizations that would have some quote input into it. And that was passed by the United Nations at least 50 years ago. So it's been out there for a long, long time. And that that's no theory that they have that in mind. And and they're working, if you if you'll just watch what they're doing every day, they're working toward that. And uh, as I said, the United States of America is the only thing that's holding that back. Because if we go, then Israel goes. If we go, then probably Ukraine goes. And then if we go, mo most of the Western hemisphere is gonna go. So. That's the reason why it is so important that, quote, America is made great again, because we are the hedge pin, uh, a hedge pin of the world right now. And, and I think if we look upon that, if this is our responsibility to make sure that the world doesn't fall into Lucifer's arms in the next four to six years, that that, that would maybe give some of us a reason to speak up because we've been shouted down and we've been shut up by the other side 
And we've got to be bold enough to speak the truth and speak it often and, and get somehow get the message to our children. Uh, and this is one of the things that I'm doing. When I spend my time, every opportunity I get, I speak to youth groups and, and I tell them about some of the things that are going on and, and things that they need to be aware of. But uh, so, you know, Lenin said, give me one generation of your children and I'll change the world. <laughs> and uh, I think we're seeing a lot of that happen. I think we've given them probably four generations now, yeah. and it's it's no wonder that we're in the shape that we're in. It's amazing. Well, uh, uh, Dr. McCullough, I, I would be curious. Uh, I think the only way we're going to get the election system back is if we go back to all paper ballots, hand counted at the precinct level, verified at the precinct level, and then uh, brought to the county level, and from there uh, reported nationally. That's the only way I see that we can get our election system back. I was a county commissioner for a while, and uh, one of the jobs that I had was uh, verifying that the, uh, the voting machines were accurate. And I posed to our county uh, clerk, who was in charge of the voting machines, this question. What if they program it so that, uh, what if in that program, starting at midnight on the day of the election, that they drop every fourth uh, vote for a Republican candidate and move it into the Democrat, uh, you know, in the Democrat category? She said, well, that couldn't happen. I said, why couldn't it happen? And she couldn't answer that. Well, it's like you said a little earlier, a computer is nothing but a machine, and whatever instructions you give it is exactly what it's going to do. And you can program it to do anything, and you're right. Georgie Schwartz invested in uh, several of the big computer uh, uh, voting machine companies uh, as far back as like 23 years ago. I saw some of the stuff that he was involved in. It was in the mid nineties. Well, I guess it was 30 years ago now, in the mid-90s. Uh, he was buying voting machines. So it's completely possible that as long as we use a computer to do our counting, that we're going to have skewed results. Yeah. Well, the question is, are we willing to do those things. I think, you know, we know what the answer is and we know what needs to be done. How do we do it? B because we know that the opposition is going to scream bloody murder and it's going to call racism or anything that you want to, any, any way they, they know to shut us up when we start talking about voter ID and making sure that, that people vote once that are eligible to vote, all of these things. And, and we have just been shouted down and, and we're, we're listening to it. We just need to turn blind ears to those things that we know are not true and just focus on what we know is true and just go full speed ahead. But we just don't have, I don't think that we, I don't think Republicans do as good a job planning we tend to be more reactionary. The Democrats think of the long game and they have an all means necessary objective. It doesn't matter what it takes, lying, cheating, stealing, the, the end justifies the means in their minds. Mm -hmm. And anybody 
knows that what's happening at the border right now with all these illegals coming in from all over countries, many of whom hate us, is a stupid thing. But the Democrats think that it's a good thing because it's their way to remain in power. And, and when you in power, it just seems like that's that most of what they're they're about. And it is because I think they're connected very closely with the Illuminati, the super elite ruling class, whatever you want to call that group. They own the Democrat Party now. Mm -hmm. OK, another conspiracy theory. Well, let me let me give a little fact. In the early 1950s, I believe, again, do you do you remember who Norman Mattoon Thomas was? I Norman remember Mattoon the name. Mm -hmm. OK, Norman Mattoon Thomas was a candidate for president on the Socialist Party of oh, America yeah. about four different elections. Mm -hmm. And so in the 1950s, he said to his convention, and I quote, I no longer have to run for president. The Democrat Party has adopted our platform. Period. Mm -hmm. End quote. So if once again, that's not a theory. Here's the man who was pushing socialism, who said they were. And then if you just go back and look at what they've done, absolutely they are. And and, and there's another element. I don't know if, if you've got another direction you want to go down right now. But if if you don't, I'd like to connect one other one other thing. Uh, there's something called the Cloward Piven strategy. Oh yeah. And this is a this is a strategy developed by two Columbia University economists. And keep in mind that Barack Obama supposedly attended uh, Columbia University during about the time that, that they wrote this article. And it was the weight of the poor. I forget what the exact name of it, but it was something mm -hmm. about the weight of the poor. And this strategy was a strategy to bring down America. And the strategy was to overload the welfare system and drive the country into bankruptcy. And then mm -hmm. the world bankers are there, of course, to lend the money. And uh, once uh, ultimately, whenever you borrow more money than you can pay back, what happens? The bank steps in and takes control, right? So mm -hmm. I think this was part of their plan. And so all of the things that we're seeing driving us into our debt is going. I know it was 19 million when, when Obama was in office because I wrote that in, in the book. And I think it's up to 31 or 34. I said million. 34 trillion. trillion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 34 trillion today. All right. So it's almost doubled what in the last 10, 12 years, something like that. Mm -hmm. And 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 so uh, many of our enemies own those bonds, but those bonds are sold through the World Bank. And, and so we have to keep that in mind. And so I fully believe that the objective of the Democrat Party is to continue with all the socialist giveaway programs to drive us into bankruptcy. And at that point, the World Bankers can step in and take control of things. They'll call declare bankruptcy. And that's a point that you can track and all the money that they're quick to give away, and Margaret Thatcher said it very, very well, is eventually you're going to run out of other people's money. Mm -hmm. And so with their tax and spend uh, programs, that's I think that's exactly what we're seeing right now. Well, as a matter of fact, yeah, we've done a couple of programs on Cloward and Piven, and there's a, a very famous picture of, uh, Bill Clinton signing the motor voter law in 1995, I believe. 
And uh, Richard Cloward and Francis Fox Piven were invited or standing right behind the president when he signed that motor voter law into effect. And that, uh, well, let, you know, I know you'd probably agree with me on this, but I really want to hear your opinion. Uh, let's talk about the uniparty. Let's talk about the neocon Republican establishment, Republican party who, and understand I'm a, I'm a Republican. Um, I've, I've been at the very top of the Montana state party. Uh, I've been the financier for the state party. I've been, um, at, and, and I'm still involved with the Republican party, but the Republican party, the establishment are globalists, just like the Democrats are globalists. And what I, what I say, and I'd like to hear your opinion, I, uh, I look at it this way. The Democrat Party are communists. They're international socialists. The Republican, and I'm talking the establishment neocon Republican Party, are fascists. They believe in, in uh, they believe in national socialism. They believe in the relationship between business and government, uh, the so-called public-private partnerships. They like that term. They really do. We have been taken over by a uniparty system, and uh, thank goodness we've got uh, some uh, Republicans out there like my Congress from. Uh, congressman from Eastern Montana, uh, Matt Rosendale. And we've got a few like that. We've got p people like uh, uh, Matt Gates from Florida. We've got uh, uh, Andy Biggs from Arizona. There's 20 or 22 of these Freedom Caucus guys that are the only real conscious for the Republican Party right now. They are the ones that are uh, still standing up for individualism and freedom. That, I think, is a big problem because we, we fail to see that sometimes the establishment Republicans are every bit as bad as the establishment Democrats. They're just a little less honest about the way they approach it. Am I, uh, am I speaking too far out of turn there? No, I totally agree with you. And I, too, can talk from an inside-out situation. I was chairman of our county party here in Baldwin County, Alabama, which is the largest county in the state. I was vice chair of the state Republican Party, mm -hmm. and I was on the, uh, the executive committee. And on that executive committee, we had 21 members. And when I got there, I have never been more frustrating frustrated in my life. And I've been involved, you mentioned that I've been involved in a lot of organizations. <laughs> I've been president of a lot of organizations on the boards of directors of them. And I have never seen anything more frustrating because everything that came up, every issue that came up, let me back up just a little bit. There were 10 of us that were there for what we thought we could do for our state and our country. There were 11 of them there for what that position could do for them and their business. One of the members of the 11, sort of the leading guy in their own radio stations, two of them were ran campaigns, political campaigns. One was uh, a lender 
who lent money to campaigns. And so they had a small uh, a group of, uh, of 11 people that voted as a block. And one of the first questions that I asked, we were there to, to determine whether or not somebody that had violated the ethics and had been thrown out of his church for embezzling money should remain on the committee. <laughs> and so I asked the question, I said, well, what did our code of ethics say about that? And they all looked at me and said, we don't have a code of ethics. And I said, well, I think that may be part of our problem. And I said, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to introduce uh, a motion right now that you establish a committee and let's, uh, let's create a code of ethics so we could handle these issues. That was voted down. My motion to create a, a code of ethics was voted down. And I said, this is the greatest argument that we should have one. Well, I was on that for three years and I worked diligently. And I will tell you that on the, on the meeting after I left, it was voted into action. But, but in, within the Republican Party, you're absolutely right. We have people that are so-called Republicans, rhinos in, in name only, because it benefits them to be a Republican. And, and there are just so many of them that just absolutely are not patriots. And they're not there for the right reason. And I would say this, that the first thing that we should do at our local level, I mean, all politics is local, right? At the local level, we should identify who those people are and vote them out of office as quickly as we can. And we got a lot of elections coming up this year. You know, find out who's, who's a rhino or who's a neocon and let's get rid of them. Let's get some people in there that, that are true patriots and and I'll tell you this, when you, you're opening um, part of this show, and I listen to the song, uh, Great uh, um, American. Proud to be an to American. Be American. Mm -hmm. Proud to be an American. I mean, I literally got chills all over again. It's just, I do. When I say the Pledge of Allegiance, I still get chills. And I just don't think we have people like that that are in positions of power today. We've got so many people that are there for what those positions can do for them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, there was a, a great article that was in the New American Magazine about Kerry um, uh, Lake in Arizona. And I, I don't know if you've uh, heard, but they, they tried to buy her off. They tried to get her yeah. to... Uh, not run for the Senate seat. Uh, they wanted her to hold out two terms. Two, uh, well, guess what? Two terms. They plan on owning everything. They plan on everything being global. Everything being no United States of America as a constitutional republic. That's uh, at the essence. And that was her own party chairman in the state of Arizona, uh, our our Senator Steve Daines, and uh, you know, I'm really disappointed because I, I know Steve personally, and I thought he was a pretty good kid. I thought he was going to be a, a, a terrific senator, and in fact, he's bought into the party process. Um, I'm, I'm sorry to say that, but uh, he really has. And he tried when Matt Rosendale announced that he wanted to run for the uh, Senate seat in Montana. Uh, Steve Daines said, uh, we've got billionaires. They don't like you. Uh, they don't like your message because you're talking about the Constitution. And I'm paraphrasing now. But uh, yeah. he, he, he said... Uh, 
they don't want to support you. These billionaires want to support a candidate that we like. And they they started announcing for uh, uh, Tim Sheehy, uh, they started running ads for him three months ago. Well, our state party, the Republican Party, part of the platform is that you can't promote an individual candidate over another candidate running in, before the primary. The primary, after the primary's over, then you can go ahead and support whatever candidate. They put millions and millions of dollars into the campaign for their billionaire-selected uh, candidate. That's the problem we have in the United States. We no longer elect the candidates of popular choice. They are selected by the establishment parties, they are uh, the, either Republican or Democrat. Uh, we get to vote on whoever they select, and that's really a sad statement. You know, Dan, all across America, in so many ways, rules seem not to matter anymore. Uh, laws seem not to matter, except to some people. Uh, you can pick and choose who you want to prosecute. You can pick and choose which laws you want to follow and which ones you don't. And, and if you, if you don't, if you don't like it, then you're accused of being a racist or a misogynist or this or that. And, and this is what I'm talking about where we're being shouted down and we're being shut up by people that really don't have um, our country's best interest at heart. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so I, I'm greatly concerned about some of our own, leaders in the Republican Party. Um, they're Republicans by name only. And I think we need to identify those people and um, and make some significant changes, even starting at the school board level. As I said, you know, uh, we need we need to get involved at the local level and uh, the school board, PTAs, uh, anything where young people are involved. And I know that that's not going to make much difference in the upcoming election. But the other group, once again, that's what they've been working on for a long, long time. We are reactionary and they are long-term planners and they're willing to put in the time, the energy and the money and sell their soul. Many of them, and we've got people in the Republican Party that are selling their soul for wealth and riches and power. I've got a good friend whose name is Holland Powell and Holland says, uh, the answer is money. Now, what was your question? And <laughs> yeah. Money. And and I and I include money and power. The answer is money and power. Now, what was your question? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's what controls the whole process. Absolutely. Money and power. And um, Steve Daines has been talking about that in in Montana. He he became the chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee. Uh, just this last year, and I, you know, like I say, I'm really sad because I Steve is a nice guy, a good guy, uh, a young man, fairly young man. He's in his, uh, I think, late 40s now, early 50s, uh, which seems pretty young to me. But um, he he uh, started out. He was so solidly in the camp of the constitutionalists, and now. It looks like he's uh, solidly in the camp of the big money. Uh, and again, that goes back to the idea that Republican, the establishment Republicans, I think, represent fascism. Uh, 
I'm sorry, but that's what I think. I can't disagree with you on that. It's a sad state of affairs that we look to leaders, we look to people we trust to look after our interest, and they're basically selling us down the down the river, so to speak. And and that's a sad state, you know. When I think when you 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 mentioned uh, one of my books, um, oh, that, oh. Mm -hmm. the oath, and and I it's been a number of years since I wrote that book. So earlier today, I went back and I started looking at it, and I thought, oh my goodness, this could have been written yesterday, yeah. and and I wrote it probably eighteen years ago. And and um, it, it, I'm just greatly concerned about where we are and where we're going. And we don't have people that will stick to their guns. I think once they get in those positions of power, I think Washington and state legislatures as well, they change people. People don't go there to change government. They may go there with that in mind, but just the opposite seems to happen. The system changes them. I think they're overwhelmed by it in many, many cases. They're pulled at, they're offered these things, and, and the power and money eventually wins out. Yeah, I think you're right. There's a, a kind of a, a, a joke about it, and I think it's spot on. They say everybody knows that Washington, D.C. is a cesspool. And yeah. uh, the people that get elected... Uh, after they're there two terms, they start treating it like a hot tub. I think that pretty well explains, uh, you know, they soak in it. Yeah, and, and that's, what, that's what they all hate about Donald Trump. They've been unable to change him, regardless of what they have thrown at him. And they, if they can break him, then the game's over. And that's why they're throwing everything but the kitchen sink after him in every way that they can. And so I would say this, that that if you really want to affect change in America, the best thing that any of us can do, and as I said again, you may not like the way he wears his hair or the way he talks or what, but, but support Donald Trump. Get out there and do what you can to see that he gets back in office. And I do believe this time around he will drain that swamp up there because he now sees what it is and he's been affected by it and they've taken him on. And uh, that's that to me, it's our last chance. It's yeah, our last I... chance to get him back in office and then try to let him create federal judges and Supreme Court. Think about this. Those three Supreme Court justices that he appointed during his term, his previous term, think about where we'd be in America today without them. Oh, Those yeah. three justices have not always voted the way that we would like to see them vote. But think where we would be if they were appointed by Hillary Clinton. Uh, and, and we're going to have another one or two in the next probably four years. And so probably the, one of the most important things that a president can do right now for the country is the Supreme Court uh, justices, because a lot of the things that uh, President Trump is dealing with right now are going to come to the Supreme Court. And I hope that they won't get timid <laughs> and forget why they're there and they'll do the right thing and throw some of this crap out that's being thrown to them and, and at him. I, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Supreme Court. What do you think about some of these recent decisions by the Supreme Court? 
Um, they need one more good justice. There's no question about it, because I think everybody recognizes that even though John Roberts was uh, brought in as a so-called conservative, Obamacare couldn't have passed without him. And exactly. uh, he's been he's an incredible disappointment. What do you think about the court right now? Well, I'm disappointed in people like John Roberts because he, he's a moderate, I guess is the best way that I would describe him. He, he kind of goes uh, with the wind and he found a way to push Obamacare through mm -hmm. uh, in, 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 by calling it a tax. I mean, he created a way to get Obamacare through. And, and we don't realize the full effect of it yet. The American people don't. But those of us in the medical profession warned against Obamacare very early on because it's, it's, it's government-run insurance. And once the person who pays your premium is the person who's going to control your care. And when the government pays your premium or the majority of your premium, they're going to tell you who you can go to. Obama lied to us. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. If you like your health care plan, you can keep your health care plan. He looked people in the eye and told them that, and knowing full well that was not his intention. Mm -hmm. And so we've seen the quality of care in many respects decline. And from a and I can tell you this, I'm involved in programs at the University of Alabama to train the pre-med students, the, the physicians of tomorrow. And I've been involved in that for the last 20 years. And I can tell you that we're seeing a different candidate looking to go into medicine than we saw 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. The high, the best and the brightest are looking elsewhere because they're not willing to work for the federal government. We still have capitalism and they have found ways that they can use their talents and in, 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 uh, in other ways. Now, don't get me wrong. We're seeing some wonderful students. I, uh, uh, we we just finished two weeks ago having an event at the University of Alabama. I was duly impressed with the students that we've got, but we're seeing a little different mindset. Today, these medical students are, they're, they're limited as to how many hours they can spend learning in the clinic. After a certain number of hours, and I think 60 hours, they've got to leave. They could be in the middle of a critical operation or could be in the middle of grand rounds where the professor is about to teach them a lesson of a lifetime and they look at their clock and if their clock hits 12, they've got to walk away and leave. And that they're being pampered to the wow. extent that, that it's just a different breed of doctor. I have trained a hundred facial plastic surgeons in my career. I've trained more than anybody else in my profession. And I have stopped now the fellowship program because we're, we're not getting the same kind of candidates. They came in expected to be pampered, didn't want to work, didn't want to do, wanted to change the way we did things rather than or to come and learn the way that we've done things for 50 years. And so I just decided I, I would quit doing it. It's frustrating. And that's all happening because of Obamacare, because the, the income of physicians of, of started dropping about 25 years ago, 5% per year. Now, not keeping up with inflation, but went down 5% per year. And with Obamacare, it was an immediate 20% reduction in the reimbursement to doctors that came with Obamacare. And the AMA supported it. 
the American Medical Association mm-hmm. supported Obamacare because they had been infiltrated by a lot of socialist physicians who are all part of, of, of that program as well. So I, I'm very deeply concerned about the future of healthcare. And if you don't think that didn't all have something to do with COVID and some of the mandates that came down from COVID, because the private physicians were taken out of the picture. And it was the hospital employees, the Obamacare employees, that they they mandated to run the show. And they did. They had no other choice because they were employees of the government. I know I'm on a little bit of a soapbox here, but those well, are actually, just some of the <laughs> Yeah, well, that I wanted you to talk about, uh, Dr. McCullough, because I agree with you. Uh, the the uh, the people who stood up and said, you know, there's something wrong with this whole program. First of all, the way that the uh, disease uh, ended up coming to our country, the fact that uh, uh, North Carolina University, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Barrett and uh, Anthony Fauci and all the connections with patents and all the things that were part of this whole COVID thing, and then you mentioned the uh, the fact that they had a, a planning. Bill Gates uh, funded and paid for it, but they had an actual planning uh, group and session uh, months before the actual pandemic that literally mirrored every aspect of the pandemic. And the fact is, and I I agree with you as a pandemic. A lot of the things that they addressed during that exercise, during that uh, emergency floor exercise, were things that they would be concerned about how they needed to shut people up if uh, there was an element that didn't want to take the jab. I mean, there was a lot in those floor exercises that were just like the real thing. Yeah, it it was an enactment. It actually was a dress rehearsal of what came down. And those things don't just happen. Uh, and, and you know, you can bet they're planning the next one. Mm-hmm. You just don't know what it is yet, but they're planning the next one. Well, they're calling it X. Uh, they, you know, they like to give names to everything, and now they're calling it uh, Virus X or uh, yeah. Pandemic X. And, um, you know, it's amazing, but they always seem to have a uh, a program in place when they do this stuff. But I, I want you to go back to that. You're a medical doctor. You saw all the things that happened. I agree with you. Uh, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, chlorine dioxide, there's any number of things that uh, seem to be very effective in dealing with uh, the COVID uh, virus. And yet, at the same time, they when Donald Trump even mentioned that they they demonized the man, uh, they t- tried to make him look like he was some kind of nut for uh, talking about other alternatives and ways to deal with the uh, the disease. Um, that whole program that was designed to get him out of the presidency, wasn't it? That was part of it. Part of it had to do with that. The other part of it, unfortunately, was making billions of dollars for the pharmaceutical companies, mm-hmm. and they did. And that would, and the more money they made, the more power they would have over politicians. 
And so it was it was a, a, a multifaceted type of program. But here's something that, that I want to share with, with uh, the audience that just didn't seem right to me from the very beginning. As I said, I, I watched this very carefully from its outset. Patients who went to emergency rooms or uh, urgent care centers and were tested and found to be positive for COVID were given no medications and were sent home and told, come back when you're having trouble breathing. That was the protocol. That was the protocol, the mandate that came down from Big Brother. Well, here's a little bit of, of pathology and medicine that I want everybody to understand. When you can actually remove one of a person's lungs completely, take that lung out altogether, and a person can still function normally, may not be able to run a marathon, but they can still function normally with one lung. You have to lose somewhere around 75% of your lung capacity in order to have trouble breathing. So whenever people were having trouble breathing and came back to the urgent care center or went to the hospital, then they were put on some medications and they were generally put on a, a, a ventilator, a respirator. Well, the lung was already dead. See what happened with COVID, and here get a little technical with this. The virus actually affected the internal lining of the blood vessels right. and caused them to swell extensively. Well, the little blood vessels out in the periphery of the lung and the lateral aspects of the lungs were shut off completely. Well, it's like when you have a heart attack, the coronary artery is shut and the heart muscle dies. Well, this was like having multiple lung attacks and the lung was dying out in the periphery where the small vessels were. And so by the time somebody was having trouble breathing and went back, most of the lung was already dead. And that's why when they said some of the trials that they used hydroxychloroquine in and ivermectin didn't work. Well, it didn't work because 75% of the lung was already dead. And then the respirators, about, what, 2% of the people that were put on respirators ever came off? It's something mm -hmm. like that. It's, it's a mm -hmm. very small percentage. And so what this system did, what our healthcare system did in America, is they created a situation that was intended for people to die. Mm -hmm. Whenever you say, come back when you're having trouble breathing, and we don't give you anything until that point, there was no way that they were doing what was in the best interest of the patients. Now, let me connect one other dot for you. If a patient was admitted to the hospital and had a diagnosis of COVID of any kind, the hospital got paid $13,000 more than they would with any other uh, diagnosis. And if a person died, whether it was a suicide or whether it was an automobile accident, falling off a cliff, whatever it was, doctors at the hospital were told to include COVID as one of the diagnoses. And the death certificate, you got three reasons. You got the primary reason and a secondary reason, and then what's called a tertiary. Well, they were told to put COVID down at least as a tertiary cause, and the hospital got paid $13,000 more. If you put the patient on the respirator, that got paid $33,000 more. So now then you've got the hospitals 
with big pharma, with big medicine, big government, running this show that was never intended to cure the disease or take care of the American people. That's why I say it's the greatest fraud that's ever been perpetrated, and the people that are involved in it and were responsible for it really ought to go to jail. They really ought to, because when you look at this, it was a travesty that was perpetrated on humanity. Yeah, you're right. Am I, yeah, I'm exercised about it because I, I, I saw what was happening. And, and then the vaccines, we mentioned about Dr. Malone saying it wouldn't work. And he was the man that created the whole system. They had to change the definition of the word vaccine mm-hmm. for these jabs to be qualified as a vaccine. Because with a vaccine, what you do is you give a person a very tiny amount of the virus that you're trying to protect them against. And usually it's it's the dead virus that you give right. to them. So your immune system recognizes it and builds up uh, antibodies to it so that whenever you're exposed to the real thing, you already have some resistance. These so-called vaccines did not have any of the COVID virus in it. They had this mRNA system that was simply created to, to cause your immune system to just all of a sudden explode and, and put out all these antibodies and things that ended up stopping up vessels, causing myocarditis and causing young people to, to, to die, uh, women who were pregnant to abort uh, and babies to die. All of these things happened as a result of these so-called vaccines and this pandemic. Mm-hmm. So if there ever was a wrong perpetrated on humanity, this was. Oh, I agree. I agree. And uh, it, 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 the problem with it is that the uh, medical doctors, as you said, uh, the ones that were part of the establishment for the hospital system were in on this because there was money involved in it. Uh, government grants, as you say, the 13000 plus the 30 39,000 or whatever it was for the uh, respirators. But they also, um, this is the part that's really disturbing to me, is so many of these doctors that were in this process blacklisted the ones who refused to go along with the system. Let's talk about that because that was a big deal. They, how did they do that? How did they have so much power that they made so many people that were just speaking opinion or truth, but a combination of both? And I know a number of doctors that have said exactly this, um, that you know it didn't make any sense the way it was presented to them. And the respirators, they, a lot of medical doctors that I've talked to, said that it was counterproductive to put someone on a respirator if they had a bunch of dying and dead tissue in their lungs. It actually caused more problems than it actually solved. Right. So how about the medical profession right now? Where do you see the medical profession uh, if we run into another problem like this? I don't know that it's gonna be any better. Um, and and I, 
if you'll allow me to develop this, I, I think I can answer your question and provide dots that can be connected going forward for this for this next one. Now, let me say this. Years ago, and because of a story I'm going to tell you, I resigned from all medical insurance companies, and I set up my own operating room so I'm not dependent upon a hospital. When I was a doctor in training, I was standing at a scrub sink with my mentor in New Orleans, Louisiana, 1974. And I said, Dr. Anderson, what advice would you give somebody at my stage in my career? He said, son, as quickly as you can, get independent of hospitals and third-party carriers. Now, that was the heyday of medicine. If you to told a hospital that you wanted to come there and bring patients to their hospital, they'd darn near send a limousine for you every time you wanted to come. Hmm. Nowadays, they charge us $500 or more to process our application fee to bring patients to their hospitals now. They charge us for that. Now, um, and and um, so I got independent. I followed the advice of, of this doctor very, very early on. And then what happened is that Hospitals started employing hospital, uh, doctors and buying doctors' practices so that the doctors ended up becoming employees of the hospital. And so very few of them now are able to run their practice out of their office. They depend upon the hospital to put, put their patients in there, to do the surgeries. And so they are isolated now where you almost can't set up your own operating room. It's more difficult to do that and to run a private practice. It is still possible, but they've made it more and more difficult. So when these doctors were told what the hospital protocol was, and the hospitals own most of the urgent care centers, so those protocols came down from the hospitals, and since the doctors were either direct employees of the hospital or dependent upon the hospital, they had to follow those mandates. That's mm. not going to get better. I don't see that getting any better anytime soon. There is an alternative, but it's an alternative that's going to be a small percentage and not that many of Americans are going to be able to do it. It's called concierge medicine. It's where you find a doctor that has a limited number of patients. He's going to say maybe 600 patients. Those all the patients I'm going to take care of. You pay that doctor almost like a fee to join a club. You pay him an initiation fee and you pay him an annual, annual fee. And then they, you're guaranteed an appointment within 24 hours when you call for an appointment. Mm. And you're guaranteed that if you had to go to the hospital, your doctor will meet you at the hospital and be your representative at the hospital. He can't take care of you, but he can make sure that the other doctors do a better job taking care of you. That's concierge medicine, but that's only a very, very small percentage. So doctors are now locked into the system, and I don't see it getting any better. And what's happening now is they're beginning to move doctors aside. So they're bringing in nurse practitioners, they're bringing physician's assistants. They're trying their best to eliminate the doctor altogether. About four years ago, I was invited by the insurance company that insures doctors in the state of Alabama to attend a, a meeting in Las Vegas as their guest. One of the programs was about artificial intelligence. And I happened to be sitting on the front row during this presentation, and this was an attorney from New York who was talking about all of the companies in Silicon Valley that were working on artificial intelligence programs for the health profession, for the medical profession. 
And so he finished up talking about how the time will come where all you need is basically a, a medical tech. You go in and you tell the tech what your symptoms are and they plug it into the system. And then it, it spits out what laboratory work you need to do. And so you do that and then it, it tells you what the potential diagnosis is and tells you what the treatment program is. And so basically he was saying that it was going to pretty much eliminate the position of the doctor. So the doctor could spend more time talking to the patients, not making decisions, but talking to the patient. So when he finished up, he said, are there questions? Well, once again, who's, who's hands first up, hand me the microphone. And I said, uh, Mr. So-and-so, I said, tell me what companies in Silicon Valley are working on an artificial intelligence system for the legal profession. And he was speechless. Wow. And I said, hmm. I said, because just imagine this, you've got two parties and they have a problem. They can go in and have a tech, a legal tech, you know, factor in, punch in all of their information and their complaints and their uh, testimony and this sort of thing. And all you got to do is push a button and the verdict comes out. So we won't need lawyers anymore either. <laughs> <laughs> I bet he loved that. The whole room broke into applause when I said that, you know, 400 doctors are there. So um, what I'm saying is that physicians have long been targets because they don't want us making decisions. They want big government making the decisions and they're squeezing us from every, every possible way. I'm very fortunate that I had a mentor tell me, in 1974, get independent of hospitals and get independent of third-party carriers. And, uh, you know, the, the surgeries that I do, the patient and I have a contract. I tell them what the cost is going to be. They pay me uh, up front for the procedure, and I do what I – it's a contract. And I don't, have to, I don't have to call an insurance company and get approval and all of those things. So that is a higher level of care, but unfortunately, we're losing that every day. And it's kind of a shame, but we, we've talked about that in the state of Montana. Uh, you can't practice law in the state of Montana if you're not a member of the Bar Association. They've got these clubs that uh, they, they can use to define who is a doctor, who is an attorney, who is a professional. And a lot of times those clubs are very, very exclusive and they're exclusive for a good reason, because they want to keep anybody that has a dissenting opinion or a differing opinion from being part of the club. And uh, oh, yeah. I've, I've got a good friend who uh, was a, an attorney in the state of Oregon, and uh, the State Bar Association blacklisted her because she was an outspoken Trump supporter. And I mean, this is exactly what's happening in this country. Let me ask you, we're, we're going to end up running out of time. I think you and I could probably talk for a day uh, just because <laughs> there's so many things that we want to talk about. But let's talk about Margaret Sanger and the eugenics program, because UN Agenda 21 and the Biodiversity Treaty that came out uh, is a consequence of that whole system. I have spoken openly about the fact that uh, they think the world's uh, maximum sustainable population should be somewhere under a billion people. 
how does all this stuff that they're doing with pandemics and all the rest of this factor into the fact that uh, they think there's way too many of us and they don't mind a bit uh, calling the herd. And if they're going to call the herd, they're probably going to call the part of the herd that represents the most resistance to them. Yeah, those they can't control. Mm-hmm. Those they can't control. Well, I, th I, think, I, I think the whole COVID thing was a test uh, to see how that would work and, and how they could do that by using uh, a virus, uh, you know, viral warfare. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so I, I don't have any doubt whatsoever that that's not something that they're seriously considering. And they will try to control where people live, um, what they think, all of those things. It's, it's, they've all wanted to control us in every way possible for a long, long time. I don't know much about her program in detail, so I can't answer your question, Dan, much more well, detail than that. She was uh, actually the founder of Planned Parenthood, and uh, uh, Margaret oh, Sanger. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, now, okay. Yeah. Now, now I connected a little bit. I got, mm -hmm. I got you. Well, it didn't turn out exactly the way that she planned it, maybe, but uh, they're definitely uh, the, this whole Planned Parenthood thing is a scam too, and a, and a scheme, a scam and a scheme. Because they use those fetal tissues in a lot of the uh, big pharma. As a matter of fact, there's some evidence to show that fetal tissues were used during for these so-called COVID vaccines, uh -huh. and that that's one of the reasons why we're having so much difficulty with people's immune systems following that. And so the abortion clinics are a source for these for, for these this fetal tissue. And so I think all that's part of the, the whole deal. Yeah, yeah, I think it is, too. They use stem cell uh, from fetal tissue, and uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of problems here. But if you look at what Planned Parenthood has done, of the 50-plus million people who have been aborted, uh, young children who have been aborted since 1970, uh, as a result of uh, these programs, Roe v. Wade, and uh, you know all the all the rest, uh, the lion's share of those uh, uh, over, I think it's uh, the numbers, forty three percent were African American. Now, understand something: they call us racist for mm -hmm. even mentioning things like this. But it, I would think that uh, that. Black Americans would be incensed by the fact that uh, they've used something like abortion as a way to uh, to limit their population. And if I they am, knew. if they knew, and that if you know, you you kill babies, <laughs> you kill babies, and uh, Margaret Sanger was a racist. She absolutely thought that the black race uh, needed to be limited if not gotten rid of and it, it's in her a lot of her writing and i and yet they use they hold her up as some kind of an icon for the uh, so-called planned parenthood movement how can they get well, away with this stuff doctor how do they get away with this 
because they control the information. They, they control the information sources and they control the narrative. And just think about this, you know, George Floyd, Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, if adult Black Lives Matter, fetal Black Lives Matter too. But but you, they, they never connect those two things because they control the narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think the the uh, people of color in this country have gotten screwed uh, ever since um, uh, Lyndon Johnson created the so-called Great Society. Because in in reality, uh, you know, he he was creating a situation where he thought he could control people, and that is exactly. a sin. Uh, he was part of the one world government scam. There's no question about that. They, that was just one of the parts of that. So, I mean, Lyndon Johnson was not a good man. If, if you've ever really studied his life, and there's a book uh, written by the uh, uncle of a friend of mine, E. Everett Hale, and uh, E. Everett Haley, I think, I think his last name. But he wrote a book called A Texan Looks at Lyndon. And in that book, he was a journalist from uh, the area of Texas where uh, Johnson lived. And he connected, oh gosh, I can't remember how many lives, people that just died and disappeared that stood in his way uh, on the way to the White House, including John Kennedy. And Mm -hmm. so Lyndon Johnson was a very evil man and, and I wouldn't put anything past him. No, I wouldn't either. As a matter of fact, there was also a book uh, written by an attorney who represented Lyndon Johnson, and he said the same thing. He said, this guy is such a crook. Uh, yeah. But, you know, we, I, we we don't even have begin to have the time to talk about the Kennedy assassinations, as, and I use the word plural, assassinations, yep. um, because, you know, it was pretty obvious that uh, uh, that was part of the New World Order system of controlling people as well. Um, see, they, didn't I, like, they, yeah. they didn't like what he said. They didn't like what he said in his presidential address. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. That didn't sit very well with the political left and the one world government group. And then and then, whenever, I think the thing in, in Cuba uh, was probably the final final straw. Mm-hmm. That, that, that caused him to, to go after him. And, you know, uh, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. is on that trail right now. He's, he's coming out and saying that he's absolutely convinced that his father and uh, his uncle were assassinated and mm-hmm. that the CIA had something to do with it. Yeah, the CIA has something to do with all of this stuff. And, uh, of course, MKUltra, I've... I, Boy, uh, we we've got to we've got to stay connected here because I've got so many friends that I'd like to uh, uh, share information, and some of them have podcasts. If you don't mind, I will uh, I will verify before I do it. But you would be a great guest on some of their podcasts. And I'm happy to do that anytime we can arrange a schedule. You know, I feel that once again, this it's, it's my mission, it's my responsibility to try to share with people things I know. Now, you know, the, the, some of these things I know for a fact, some of these things I've connected the dots and put together in a diagnostic and therapeutic uh, protocol like I would if I were your your doctor. Um, 
But some of these things I know for a fact because I've witnessed them firsthand. Mm-hmm. And yes, uh, we should we should all be concerned that America is not quite on life support, but we're real we're getting real close, and uh, and we have this one final opportunity, I believe, in November. I believe we do too. And look, we've got five minutes. I'd love to talk about uh, what what you see. Uh, good about uh, President Trump. I think he was the first populist president that we've had in this country. Yeah. Uh, I was a big Ron Paul supporter back in 2008 and again in 2012 because Ron Paul was a populist uh, candidate as well. The Republican Party hated him almost as they hate as much as they hated Trump. And we saw it firsthand in Montana because uh, when we held our caucuses in Montana, uh, Ron Paul was uh, a very, very close uh, second um, for the uh, presidential nomination from the state of Montana. And uh, he didn't even get so much as a nod in the process. Yeah. So, you know, but let's talk about well, Trump. Know, you know Trump, so let's talk about him. I know him from almost a different lifetime. Uh, the United States Football League was a league, of course, that has had been re- revived now. But Donald Trump was the owner of the New Jersey Generals uh, in that league, and I was a minority owner in the Birmingham Stallions. But I was the person that they sent to their very first league meeting, and I sat around the table with Donald Trump and talking about the league, and he was a very bright man and very uh, not arrogant in any way. What he said, he said with, with authority, but in no arrogance whatsoever. He was all about building the league and not just his team. So, And then when he would come to Birmingham, we had the owner's box, and uh, we would sit there and talk. And uh, so I knew him from that perspective. And then when he started running for president and when he came down the escalator, I could see what was happening that day. So I wrote another book called The Anti-Trump Conspiracy, and I could see them ganging up on him at that point. And the book was not published. It took me about nine or 10 months to write this book. And so it was published right after he took office. And I documented in there what I thought they were going to try to do to to -hmm. get him. Once again, I'm I'm surprised. I'm, I'm sorry to say that a lot of that has come to pass. But as I said, people may not like the way he looks. I know I've said this many times, or the way he talks, or anything about him. But the man is brilliant. He knows what needs to be done. He knows how to do it. And if the American people would just put their trust in Donald Trump, just put your trust in him and let him be elected president again, he will straighten things out. Unless they unless they get him. And we just got to make sure that that doesn't happen because uh, I've got uh, it's, it's a, what's called a meme in that book where it's him like uh, he's Sir Lancelot riding, riding a horse and holding up the lance. And, and it said, you know, it, this is, this is our last chance. And there's, a, there's another one that's in there that I love. He's sitting there with his hands like this. And, and he says in, in the meme, he said, they're really after you. I'm just in the way. Right. And I think that's a, that's a great message. And I, I certainly am willing to put all of my faith and all of my trust 
confidence mm-hmm. in, in this man, because I do think that he may be our last chance. I think you're right. I, I think we are literally on uh, fumes right now. We're running on fumes, even though we do the, the, uh, uh, opener, the show opener, uh, that we live in freedom. The fact is we really don't, uh, what we're living. Yep. It's getting smaller every day. And, uh, what we're doing is we're, we're running on fumes and I agree with you. I think we have one chance to get our country back. And I will never say that I I think Donald Trump is the only answer. I think the only answer is that every American get off their butt and be part of the solution. That is the only answer. But then you can bring a Donald Trump into that kind of an environment and they wouldn't be able to touch him uh, under any circumstance. The American people need to get up and be the the key to the solution. Uh, I think you would agree with that? Donald Trump is our champion. We all need to be behind him, supporting him in every way we can, doing what we can do at the local level. But he's our champion. He's our man in the arena that I think can defeat this other group. Well, you've seen him firsthand. You've had a a one-on-one relationship with him. So from that regard, uh, you have something over us. I I was at the convention. I was one of the delegates at the National Convention in Cleveland in 2016 that nominated Donald Trump. And uh, we were literally within probably 20 feet of him. And... uh, uh, got a chance to hear him uh, speak to us as a group. And all I can say is that uh, the man is probably the last best chance for this country. And I got to ask you one question before we go. Yeah. Is there going to be a season? Is there going to be a season six to Yellowstone? <laughs> well, uh, we've been waiting for uh, 1923 to finish up because they started that and then they broke the uh, uh, they they broke the sequence when they had that actors uh, guild strike, and uh, so they need to finish 1923. I don't know. Uh, Kevin Costner said he doesn't want to be part of it. Do you know that that uh, that uh, sequence 1923 was actually shot in the little town that I live uh, i live five miles north of pony they shot that uh that sequence part of that sequence in pony wow yeah well they're all they've all been great and very enjoyable and i think they've put montana on the map a little bit more it certainly shows some of the beauty of your state and um i'm looking forward one of these days to getting up there myself well when you do yeah you've got a place to stay let's put it that way i don't believe you okay. Well, uh, Dr. McCullough, uh, I have to tell you, you are absolutely fabulous guest. And all I can say is that I enjoyed this so much. If you don't mind, I will stay in touch. And I would like to have you come back some other time. Uh, be my guest again. Uh, we've got different programs at different times and different days. And uh, if you don't mind, I'd, I'll uh, be back in touch. I would love it, Dan. Let's stay in touch, okay? Okay. We'll connect some dots together. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank Thank you, you, sir. I appreciate it. God bless. Great evening. You You too. too. Bye-bye. 
From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee, across the plains of Texas, oh, from sea to shining sea, from Detroit down to Houston, New York to LA, where there's pride in every American heart, and it's time we stand and say. There ain't no doubt. 